You're listening to Killer. This is case number 17, The Golden State Killer, Part 9. The East Area Rapist, Part 8. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. October 8th, 1977. Rape investigation. A cloud over 5,000 local citizens. More than 5,000 names have been offered to police and sheriff's detectives trying to track down the sexual terrorist known as the East Area Rapist. All but a dozen of the 1,000 names of possible suspects received by city police have been cleared, Lieutenant Hal Taylor said this week. The sheriff's office is not being as candid about the 4,000 suspects they have or are investigating. Sheriff Dwayne Lowe's officials refuse to say what they've done with the 4,000 tips provided to the department in the past five months. Only the police department responds to the question, what happens to all the names, all in the information gathered on so many citizens in the Sacramento area. Lieutenant Taylor says the city police have discarded any information reported to them or developed by them on all but the remaining 12 persons still considered suspect. However, the other 900 plus names are being kept on file so detectives can avoid reinvestigating men they have already cleared, Taylor explains. If the rapist is ever identified, Taylor continued, the name of the innocent will be discarded. The Sheriff's Department is continuing to sort out names of possible suspects, says Chief Deputy Fred Reese. We are not going to tell how we eliminate people. Bill Miller, the Sheriff's Public Information Officer, also refused to discuss the handling of names or personal files that have accumulated during the rape investigation. But one detective, Ronald Buchanan, said, About the only thing we are certain of at this time is that the rapist is white and male. Taylor, the head of the city's homicide squad, more candidly said most of the thousand names offered city police as possible suspects were eliminated quickly. Some have been from anonymous calls, many through the B's secret witness program, he said. Some have been obviously vindictive, like someone who didn't like the kid next door. Some have been malicious. Detectives first screened the names by the collective description of the East Area Rapist and by the times of his attacks, Taylor said. The backgrounds of men not eliminated in that screening then were checked for possible criminal leanings, or sexual perversion, Taylor said. Men still not eliminated from the suspicion then were contacted by detectives and interviewed, he said. We have kept information concerning those who fall under the good suspect classification. If we have verified they have backgrounds of major sex offenses and then they cannot be ruled out and there are other points, they continue to be possible suspects in this or other sex crimes, Taylor said. There are 12 names in that good suspect file. About 1% of all the names offered city detectives in the case, Taylor said. Most of the names flooded into the sheriff's office and police station in May after sheriff's detectives widely publicized their profile of the East Area Rapist and announced that he had a small penis. Detectives said then they believe the man is a paranoid schizophrenic acting in what psychologists call a homosexual panic because of feelings of sexual inadequacy. The rapist has struck 24 times at irregular intervals since October 1975. 22 attacks have been in homes in the East Area, one has been in the South Area, one in Stockton. The last rape in the series was early last Saturday when the rapist broke into a duplex in the La Riviera Folsom Boulevard area and attacked a 17-year-old girl who was spending the night with a boyfriend. He followed his pattern of overpowering the couple in bed, tying the man and leading the girl into another part of the house for repeated sexual assaults. October 21st, 1977. Foothill Farms. Rapist gets 25th victim. The East Area Rapist shifted to the Foothill Farms area today to attack a sleeping couple, ransack their home, and leave them untied by their two small children, sheriff's deputies reported. The rapist entered a home northeast of Elkhorn Boulevard in Diablo Drive intersection about 3 a.m., sheriff's deputies said. He wore a ski mask and carried a pistol and a knife to overpower the couple in their bedroom, deputies said. 
It was the 25th attack in 16 months attributed to the rapist. 22 have occurred in the north or east area, one in the south area, and one in Stockton. The rapist last struck October 1st when he raped a 17-year-old girl who was visiting her boyfriend in the La Riviera Folsom Boulevard area. In today's attack, the rapist forced open a side door on the garage, then broke through a kitchen door to enter the home, said Sheriff Spokesman Bill Miller. This is one of the few forced entries of the East Area Rapist, Miller said. The man has more routinely entered the homes of his victims by snapping open sliding glass doors. Neither of the doors in today's entry were secured with deadbolts, Miller noted. The rapist awakened the sleeping couple, tied the man on the bed, and then led the woman to another part of the house where he tied her and repeatedly raped her, deputy said. It is the same pattern the rapist has followed in his last nine strikes. As sure as he can be, this was the East Area Rapist, Miller said. He had the same M.O., method of operation. The rapist stayed in the house about an hour and a half, but did not awaken the children, Miller said. He left with the husband still tied in the bed and restricted by dishes placed on his body, the woman tied in a chair. October 30th, 1977. Rapist strikes for 26th time. Still no clues. The East Area Rapist attacked his 26th victim early Saturday, this time in Sacramento's northeast area, where he awakened a young couple, tied up the husband, and assaulted the woman, sheriff investigators said. The rapist previously struck eight days ago in the Foothill Farms area. Officers said he entered the home, located north of Whitney Avenue between Mission and Eastern Avenues about 1.45 a.m. by forcing open a sliding glass window in an unoccupied bedroom. The couple in their early 20s with no children were awakened when the rapist tapped the husband's foot with a pistol and shined a flashlight in their eyes, temporarily blinding them, officers said. The couple later said they could not describe the attacker, nor did they know whether he wore a ski mask. He tied up the husband in the bedroom and led the woman to another room where he raped her, officers said. The attacker left about 3.45 a.m. His M.O. was the same as all the rest, said Sheriff Spokesman Bill Miller. It was his 26th attack in 16 months attributed to the rapist. 24 have occurred in the north or east areas, one in the south area and one in Stockton. November 3, 1977. East Area Rapist. Attacker tortures victims with silence. Silence is about the only thing common to all 26 attacks of the East Area Rapist, Sheriff Detective Carol Daly said Wednesday. In each attack, there are long periods of silence, she said. He's playing games with their minds. It's a mental torture on the victims, not just a physical attack. Detective Daly detailed some of the rapist's behavior in a rare interview allowed by the Sheriff's Department with an officer directly involved in the rape investigations. His big thing is being a master over their minds once he gets them tied up, she said. That's the big trip. The rapist who has attacked 25 of his 26 victims in the past 16 months in Sacramento County has stalked his victims from the darkness of their own homes, Detective Daly said. In many cases, a woman has been tied in a chair after being raped, she said. The house has been so silent the woman has presumed the rapist has left, but when the woman tried to untie herself, the rapist jumped from the darkness whispering, Don't move. Don't move. He's quiet. The way he gets into houses without being heard is evidence enough. He is shrewd, she said. The rapist who last attacked Saturday morning in the northeast area of the county has become the top priority case for the sheriff's department, she acknowledged. Still, detectives know so little about the rapist that they are unsure of whether he is basically a burglar who has turned to sex crimes or a sex pervert who has learned to commit burglary. I don't know what comes first, and I don't think we will know until we know who he is, Detective Daly said, but a typical rapist does not have such elaborate schemes. The detective refused to discuss any conversations the rapist may or may not have had with victims as he has prowled their homes, about two hours on each attack. But she did say the rapist has said nothing to the victims that reveals anything about himself. 
During his quiet hours of terror, the rapist has not ransacked the victim's home to any great extent, Detective Daly said. It's just a mental trip, she said. November 9th, 1977. Rapist. Security tips profile given to Mira Loma audience. Approximately 700 people packed the Mira Loma High School cafeteria Tuesday night to hear about the most hunted man in Sacramento County, the East Area Rapist. Sacramento Sheriff's Officer Gary Imes and Detective Carol Daly spoke about how the public could protect itself from the man who police say it has attacked 26 times, most recently in a neighborhood near the high school. Some women interviewed said they came to the meeting simply because they were frightened and wanted to know more about the man Detective Daly said has an extremely violent potential. Others in the predominantly young female crowd said they came to learn about how to increase security in their homes. When Detective Daly began de detailing the suspect's appearance and method of operation, the crowd became very still, listening intently through most of her talk. The rapist, who usually enters a house through an open window or door, has exasperated the police with his ability to evade a capture, Detective Daly said. Some of the agencies involved in the hunt for the rapist include the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Sacramento Police Department, and the Stockton Police Department. November 10th, 1977. Number 27. East Area Rapist Attacks Girl 13. The East Area Rapist broke into the Sacramento condominium early today, raping a 13-year-old girl after he awakened and tied up her mother. The 27th attack in 17 months occurred on La Riviera Drive near Watt Avenue in the College Green section of the city about 3 a.m., said Sheriff's Chief Deputy Fred Reese. The rapist spent about two hours in their home, raping the girl, then fondling her as she sat tied in a chair. He entered the condominium by forcing open a sliding glass door, Reese said. Once inside, the rapist awakened the mother, tied her in bed, placed china on her back, and said if he heard the dishes rattle that he would cut off the daughter's fingers, police said. The rapist then led the 13-year-old into another room and attacked her. After the ski-masked armed man left the home, the girl and the woman screamed until neighbors heard them. A neighbor then followed the screams into the home and untied the two victims. She was the youngest victim in the terrifying series of attacks, police said. In his last 10 rapes, he has victimized sleeping couples in cases where he has tied the men in bed, then led women into another part of the room for sexual assaults. The East Area Rapist last struck October 29th, north of Whitney Avenue. After this morning's attack was reported about 5 a.m., sheriff's deputies took into custody a possible suspect in an El Camino Avenue restaurant. The man was questioned, taken to the scene of the rape, and held in custody about two hours before he was released. December 4th, 1977 Noise may have curbed East Area Rapist. A group of noisy teenagers hanging out on a corner may have saved a Foothill Farms woman from becoming the 28th victim of the East Area Rapist. Sheriff's spokesman Bill Miller said Saturday a man believed to be the same suspect who has sexually assaulted 27 other women broke into the woman's home about 11.30 p.m. Friday night. The intruder tied up the woman, who is in her 30s, and roamed through the house for about two hours. But because of the clamor outside... Miller speculated. The man left without assaulting the intended victim. Miller said the woman's husband was not at home at the time, but that a child slept throughout the incident. The residence chosen for the attack is near the intersection of Brett and Rebelstock Drives off Interstate 80. It was the second such attack in the area. The majority of the East Area rapes have occurred in the unincorporated area of the county, but two have been just inside the city limits. One of the attacks which, which have occurred over the past 18 months was in Stockton. Miller said there were elements of the East Area Rapist method of operation missing from the Friday night attack, possibly because of the commotion outside the house. Still, he concluded, the evidence points to its being the same man. Investigators feel he came in, she was asleep in bed, and she woke up to a flashlight shining in her face. Same MO as before. She can't give any description of the guy, 
or the weapon or anything else, but he moved her from the bedroom to another room and tied her up. Shortly after that, she and the suspect heard, heard what sounded like a bunch of teenage boys making a lot of noise and talking really loud right outside the house. They were out there for a long time and obviously made him, the rapist, very nervous, and that's probably why he didn't do a lot of things he normally does, Miller said. As we left off last week, we found the evidence, the homework. We read Mad is the Word, the essay. We're going to reread that again and actually break it down in a little bit more detail. This is Mad is the Word. Mad is the Word. The word that reminds me of sixth grade. I hated that year. I wish I had known what was going to be going on during my sixth grade year. The last and worst year of elementary school. Mad is the word that remains in my head about my dreadful year as a sixth grader. My madness was one that caused my disappointment that hurt me very much. Disappointments from my teacher, such as field trips that were planned, then canceled. My sixth grade teacher gave me a lot of disappointments, which made me very mad, and made me built a state of hated in my heart. No one ever let me down that hard before, and I never hated anyone as much as I did him. Disappointment wasn't the only reason that made me mad in my sixth grade class. Another was getting in trouble at school, especially talking. That's what really bugged me, was writing sentences, those awful sentences that my teacher made me write. Hours and hours I'd sit and write 50, 10, 150 sentences a day and night. I write those dreadful paragraphs which embarrass me, and more important, it made me ashamed of myself, which in turn, deep down inside, made me realize that writing sentence wasn't fair. It wasn't fair to make me suffer like that. It wasn't fair to make me sit and write until my bones ached, until my hand felt every horrid pain it had ever had, and as I wrote, I got madder and madder until I cried. I cried because I was ashamed. I cried because I was disgusted. I cried because I was mad, and I cried for myself. Kid who kept on having to write those damn sentences. My angriness from sixth grade will scar my memory for life, and I will be ashamed for my sixth grade year forever. So this is where we left off last week, and if you recall, the scent dogs that had traced the escape route of the East Area Rapist tracked him to a location where he most likely got into his car and left. But right at that location, they also found a few pieces of paper that looked like they had been pulled and removed from a spiral notebook. These uh, papers were known as the homework. As part of that was Mad is the Word, as well as um, a neighborhood map, which it wasn't the neighborhood he was in, but it was a map of a neighborhood. and. Um, there was also a piece of paper which had the word punishment scribbled on it. Now, punishment isn't written out clearly. It's kind of hard to see. Um, the word, the letters U-N-I-S-H-M-E-N-T are spelled out pretty evidently, but the letter P at the very beginning is kind of drawn in like a weird way, and it's got like a circle around it, and it's kind of hard to really make it out, and I don't know that anybody really knew what it said for years. So... Those were the pieces of evidence that were left behind, and last week we didn't have a great chance to sit down and really talk through that, so I wanted to do that at the top of the show here. The one thing that I wanted to touch on was mad is the word. So as I reread the uh, the essay again, and the one thing you'll notice is he writes mad is the word, supposedly. If if Let's just take this from a lens of this is the hysteria rapist's writing, okay? So he writes mad is the word, but he also wrote another article or essay and sent that to three area media outlets. So if we are to believe that those, the poem that he wrote the first time that we've already read from a few uh, episodes ago and sent that to the media and then compare it to Matt as the word, the grammar is completely different. And in this article, and Craig, you can attest to this, this was copied and pasted as he wrote it straight out of his journal. 
there's a million grammatical errors in here. It's kind of hard to read for that reason. When he writes the word like right at one point, I believe he writes it like W-R-I-G-H-T. I mean, things like that, just to give you an idea. There's just um, a lot of strange phrasings and commas and strange places and those kinds of things. So I wanted to kind of talk to you about that and get your opinion. How do you feel in your perspective now after going through the vast majority of this case and you have some of the evidence that's left behind, do you have an opinion one way or the other that this was or was not the East Area Rapist or that he planted this evidence or it just was a coincidence that it was in the location that he took off from? I think it was definitely planted. I think he left it there. I mean, the scent dogs just don't track to a certain spot and stop. And coincidentally, something like that is laying there. It's almost like it's not a confession to what he's done, but it's an indication of how things started to shape up in his life at an early age and push him over the edge and have him go down that track of dark thoughts of how he wanted to get back at people in general. That's my take. Yeah. And, you know, I'm kind of curious if, you know, I I have a tough time with this because I can, I could write a narrative where this essay fits in with him perfectly because I could say, obviously this guy's escalating. He's a criminal. You know, he felt this way back in sixth grade. He was angry. He had these strange thoughts, you know, and he was trying to, he was writing about it and expressing it. At the time, he seemed to feel like he may have been rejected to some degree and those kinds of things. And then we can try and fit that to this criminal and say, okay, well, you know, clearly he's a criminal. He must have something that's feeding his criminal behavior and point it back to this essay. Or look, at sixth grade, he was already feeling these feelings. But again, I don't know. It feels tactical to me in a way that this is conveniently laying right where he, right where he took off from, and it's ripped from a spiral notebook. And I don't know. I have a feeling with literally no evidence to back me up, but I have a feeling that this this homework evidence came from a ransacking at some point and that he just dropped it for whatever reason. He just, this was the time he was just screwing with people and just left it behind. And that was that. That's a great point. I didn't even think of that angle. It could have been. The evidence to this point, though, points that he really likes certain things like jewelry for whatever reason. He's always taken rings of victims and things like that. And I mean, I guess it it could have been something he, he collected you know, just randomly from one of his ransackings because he hit so many houses. Oh, and you have to remember the Visalia ransacking series too. Like, who knows? He could have grabbed a journal or notebook out of a room because it's one of those strange nominal value items that he would he would have taken as like a one of his treasures. Like, oh, look at this. I found this. Maybe there was more in that journal that, you know, okay, here's all this other cool stuff that was in here that like he liked for whatever reason because you would take personal mementos of the victims rather than expensive items. And so maybe he was taking this personal memento, which was a journal of a sixth grader, and for whatever reason, he liked it and kept it. And then later on, he went back and tore the pages out and left them behind there. Or or he recently found them when he was ransacking one of the, the homes during one of these East Area Rapist attacks. The one thing, though, about that is I don't know when police ever like released this information, you know, this, this the homework. I don't know when they released that to the public for them to, for this to be public knowledge because I have a feeling this wasn't released right away. And you would think if somebody wrote this that wasn't him, they would have known. 
that was their essay. Yeah. From from an eyewitness standpoint, they would have said, yeah, this was stolen from my home. This was my kid's homework. Let's talk about this from the angle of it being something that he wrote, that he shared from a personal experience that he had in sixth grade. Personally speaking, did you ever have to do this as a punishment in school? When you screwed up or did something wrong, did you ever have to go to the chalkboard, write the same repetitive sentence over and over again? You may be a little young for that, but I'm just curious. Nah, bro. I was perfect. I was an angel in school. <laughs> no. Um, uh, you know, I don't remember if I ever had to write sentences. We did have that as a punishment. I don't know that I personally recall a time that I had to do that. We used to get our name on the board. That was like the big one. You get your name on the board once, and then if your name's on the board, if they, if they had to do something to it a second time, like put a check mark next to it, that means you lost recess, which that did happen right. a few times. But I don't recall... I do. Oh, I do know now. This was more like in in high school, I think. Yeah, it was high school. We had Spanish class, and um, in Spanish class, we would always get in trouble because our Spanish teacher was terrible, and basically the class would just kind of do whatever they wanted. And then she would she would kind of like let you get really rambunctious, and then get pissed at you for letting everyone get rambunctious, which was strange. And then she would make you transcribe sentences out of textbooks in Spanish. So yeah, we did have to do some of that, not writing like the same the Bart Simpson at the beginning of right. the show. I will not say eat my shorts. I will not say eat my shorts. You know, we didn't have to do that. I never did at least. Well, dial it back a little bit from your, from your time in grade school to my time in grade school. I did have to do this because I will admit <laughs> I was a little asshole in school quite often. And just from the standpoint of this being that feeling of inadequacy or that feeling of being shamed and Dare I say, from a perspective of a teacher bullying a student, I don't even want to go down that tangent because it's going to piss a lot of people off. But it did suck to go to the board and write sentence after sentence. I did it at least, if I recall correctly, three times. And there was one time where I had to go up and do it in front of the class. This wasn't an after-school thing. This was like in the middle of class, and she made me come up there and start writing. I don't even remember what the sentences were, but write till the board was full. And the board was the size of the wall. Yeah. What was what was the sentence? I don't remember. I mean, I also <sighs> come from the the day and time of when you still got your ass beat in school. I got my ass beat literally four times in school. I remember every one of them. So, <laughs> what what did you do? Let's see. The first time was in third grade, and we were picking on this one kid, and we were the typical little asshole bullies and we were telling this kid he was a fat fuck and he was railing this one other fat chick that was a grade ahead of us and the third third grade mind you eight years old and the teacher found out and she took us out in the hallway and beat our asses with a yardstick oh yeah you deserve yeah it. <laughs> i think it was again in the fifth grade just for being disruptive in class um one time on the school bus for raising a ruckus on the school bus. The school bus driver literally stopped in the middle of the road, marched to the front of the bus, and he had a what looked to be like a two-by-four with a carved-out handle, whooped our ass on the bus. And then <laughs> the last time was in eighth grade. We were Jeez. in study hall, and, yeah, I was, um, I think I was throwing stuff from the back of the study hall classroom and hitting another kid in the back of the head, and, yeah, he ratted me out. I got my ass beat in eighth grade then, too. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I never got... I never got in that much trouble. One year we really hated our recess monitor and, you know, being, I think, second second or third grade, we all had the great idea that 
if we acted up bad enough for long enough, she would quit. And uh, so we all started trying to challenge ourselves to see how many times we could get in trouble. And I never got like hit. We just get taken off of recess or whatever. And that was really it. And then the only other time I'm thinking of that I got in trouble, I got sent to the principal's office. My bus driver, I don't know how she, oh, dude, I don't know how she saw this. Okay, so I got off the bus, and one of my best friends was on the bus, and he was looking out the window at me, and he flipped me off. I was probably a freshman in high school when this happened. Maybe eighth grade. No, I think it was freshman. Anyway, so I get off the bus, and I'm looking back at the bus, and he gives me the bird. And I'm like, oh, you son of a bitch. So I had my backpack over, like, you know, just one strap over my shoulder, and I turned around, you know, like, with my back to the bus, and, like, on the other side where the backpack wasn't, I just, you know, lifted my other arm and flipped the bird under my back, you know? Like, so just, like, this real discreet, like, I'm just giving him the bird back and walking away. The next morning, I get on the bus, you know, it's, like, 7 o'clock in the morning. My bus driver's like, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, okay, what I do? She goes, did you flip someone off on the bus yesterday? <laughs> I'm like, um, yeah, I guess, you, yeah, I did. She's like, why'd you do that? I go, well... They flipped me off first. <laughs> and that wasn't apparently a very good response because I got sent to the principal. And the principal sat me down and he's like, did you flip somebody off yesterday? Yes, I did. Okay, don't do it again. That was it. Yeah, and that's that's just how much times have changed. If I would have done that in school at that age, at that time, I, I would have got, got paddled. I would have got whipped. Well, I'll tell you what. Next time, well, I, I still to this day don't know how she saw me. Because, you know, she's in the driver's side and I was on, you know, so she's in the United States on the left side of the bus at the front left, okay? And I am on the back right side of the bus when this happens, not to mention the back half of the bus when I do this. And I'm not in the view of her mirror. Like, my hand is in the opposite direction. Like, I'm completely covered. Somebody tattled on me. Yeah, I'd say somebody ratted you out. Back to the point we're trying to make here for the ear if this was his homework and was his basically his venting about how much he hated the sixth grade and what they made him do and how they shamed him and it makes sense to me it does i mean it set a precedence at that at that age when he was 11 12 years old that he was just completely disappointed and completely distraught about what had happened that year of school i'm not an expert did it set things in motion later in life it could have been a jumping point I have no idea. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Um, the one last thing I want to touch on uh, about the homework before we move on is there was this map that was drawn, and it looked like a map of like a neighborhood laid out and almost like a map you would draw if you were kind of planning to lay out a new neighborhood in this area, an undeveloped area or something like that. And it had like lines on it that kind of would show like sloping and grade and this and that. And for a long time, people thought that because he would attack near a lot of residents that were for sale or in new construction areas that maybe he had a background in real estate or land development or something like that. So then this kind of like fit that narrative. But knowing the ear, the way that we do, and the way he would play to things that were coming out in the media, first, you know, he never attacks while a man's present. Boom, right away. He's attacking with a man present and keeps doing it almost the rest of the series. Then it's, you know, he's this paranoid schizophrenic, and then he starts running around the house so fake sobbing and 
fake crying and doing all these strange things and throwing out these red herrings left and right. He must have caught wind at some point through somewhere that they thought that he might have a tie to the real estate industry, and he found this drawing or drew it himself and tossed it aside. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like this all has, I'm sending you a message or a red herring written all over it. That's the vibe I get. But I mean, we'll find out eventually. But that is the vibe that comes to me, seeing all this stuff. It just magically appears right there at the crime scene. He wanted them to find this. Yeah, it, it was too perfectly placed. It was it was right where the dog went, like I said, and it just happened to be right there. Attack number 45, December 18, 1978, San Ramon. A family living in San Ramon had developed a routine that they would that they would follow each day once they had learned of the East Area Rapists. They would search their entire home prior to leaving, and once more when they returned. They tried to find screens with holes in them, photos that were misplaced or stolen, things out of place, or a coil of rope outside of the home. The home was situated along a canalway, the perfect spot for the ear to strike. The family went about doing a check of their home when they returned one evening. They found rope under the cushion of their couch. They looked further and found a wedding photo had been removed and placed on a pad of writing paper. The pad had been previously used and returned to its place, so they knew it was, wasn't something they had done. The family reported the incident, and police had them stay elsewhere for the night. While they stayed in the home, parking an unmarked car in a nearby driveway, nothing came of the camp out, however. It's believed the car being there was too much of a dead giveaway. It's possible the year had seen the officers arrive that evening, where he peeked into the strange car and realized what was going on and aborted his attack. Attack number 46, March 20th, 1979, Rancho Cordova on Fillmore Lane. A single mother and her two kids had recently moved into a duplex where they had been there for two months. A single mother had moved from Petaluma, a small coastal California town. She worked as a secretary on Cottage Way in Sacramento. The young mother and her 12-year-old twins were asleep in the home when between 4.30 or 5 a.m. the mother was awakened by a man on top of her holding her down. Instinctively, she reacted by fighting back. The intruder struck her in the head four or five times with something that he had in his hand, but she never knew what it was. He told her, all I want is your fucking money. I won't hurt you if you shut up. She complied with his orders and was promptly tied up with a nylon tent cord, which was taken from her garage. The intruder was wearing a nylon mask, which appeared to be homemade and hung loosely from his face. She was blindfolded shortly after being tied up. The intruder continued on and ransacked the home as usual. The victim could hear him rummaging through and taking her belongings. He spoke in a gravelly, threatening voice, and repeatedly calling her a bitch. The intruder went into the kitchen and continued to ransack the home. He ransacked for what is estimated to be 45 minutes. Upon his return to the woman, he pulled her pajama bottoms down, then placed a blade of his knife against her back. He warned her it was her last chance and to tell him where the money was. The woman could feel that she was about to be raped and said to him, please don't. He then pulled back her elastic waistband and let it snap against her. At this moment, an alarm clock sounded. Then he said, bitch, and left the room. It was silent for about 10 minutes. Then she got free of her bindings quite easily. Due to some of the nuances of this attack, it wasn't 100% certain to be the work of the ear. The victim felt the way he spoke and the things he was saying was a well-rehearsed script. Her son had heard something outside around 12.30 a.m., but did not report anything. The perpetrator took off with $3,000 worth of jewelry. Sacramento County did not want to believe this was the work of the year due to some of the nuances of the attack. However, Jim Bevins and Larry Compton did. Attack number 47, April 4th, 1979, in the city of Fremont on Honda Way. Motherfucker, you're dead. Put your face down or I'll blow your fucking head off, the ear told the man. 
had awakened to find a flashlight beaming in his eyes. It was around 10 p.m. The female victim awoke to the sounds of her boyfriend being threatened. The assailant tossed bindings onto the back of her boyfriend and instructed her to tie him up. Don't look at me. Don't look at me, he told her. She began tying up his hands. Tighter, tighter, he encouraged. Then he tied up the victim and retied the boyfriend's hands. The intruder left the room for a moment and was heard tearing towels in the hallway. He returned and said to them, Don't look at me or move or I'll blow your fucking heads off. He told them he only wanted money and something to eat. He rummaged the home for a while and returned to check on the couple. He asked the female victim where her purse was. She told the man it was in the garage. Once he came back from the garage, he told her to move away from her boyfriend and get out of the bed and onto the floor. The victim noticed the man had brown hairy legs. He was wearing brown checkered socks, dirty white tennis shoes, and most likely no pants. The intruder took the woman out into the living room and put her on the floor with a blanket covering her. He also blindfolded her with a towel. She heard him rummaging through the kitchen. He was headed to the bedroom with the dishes. He told the boyfriend, all I want is food for my van. Then he warned him, if I hear these, I'll blow your fucking head off. Then he bound the boyfriend's ankles using a cord he took from the television. He ran his knife down the spine of the male victim, warning him, I'll cut your head off if you move. Then he left the room. He returned to the living room where the woman still lay bound on the floor. He turned on the television, leaving it on for light, but turning the volume all the way down. He said something to the victim to which she was not sure what it was. Then he leaned in and whispered to her, If you do what I want, I'll take the food and money and leave without hurting anybody. The victim was already naked since that was how she slept. He straddled over her, placing his penis into her bound hands. He didn't say a word to her, but she knew what he was after. The victim stated he was never fully aroused. He untied her ankles and rolled her under her back. He fondled her breast, not something he typically did. He raped her for about a minute, then put her on her side and raped her again. He squeezed her left breast extremely hard, got up and put the blanket back on her. Then he rebound her ankles. He also shoved a towel in her mouth and then tied her ankles to the bookcase and turned off the TV. The ear told her, I'll just get these things together and put them in my van. She could hear him outside, then he returned. He paced around for a few moments and left again. The suspect was described as a white male, 25 to 35, 5'8 to 5'10, 165 to 180 pounds. He wore a dark ski mask, a dark nylon parka, dark pants, baggy checkered brown socks, and deck shoes. Attack number 48, June 2nd, 1979, the city of Walnut Creek on El Divisadero Drive. A 17-year-old girl was babysitting for her neighbor for the first time in a while. She had put the child to bed for the night and was sitting in the kitchen table doing homework and watching Saturday Night Live. She heard something, or just had a feeling that there was a presence behind her. She turned around and saw a man standing there holding a hunting knife, still contained in its sheath. He told her, shut the fuck up, don't you look at me, if you don't do what I say, I'll slit your fucking throat. He took her by the arm and escorted her to the master bedroom. He forced her down on her stomach on the bed, then proceeded to bind her wrists and ankles. He placed the knife against her neck and threatened her, if you don't keep your fucking mouth shut, I'll slit your throat. During the attack, the ear constantly assured her that all he wanted was money, however, he never asked her where it was. The victim was then gagged with pantyhose and blindfolded with a towel. She could hear the man ransacking throughout the bedroom and in the bathroom. He came back to her shortly after, cutting the bindings from her ankles and rolling her onto her back. He also continued on removing her shoes, socks, pants, and underwear. The man stood near her, and she could hear him lubricating himself. He straddled on top of her and asked her, Have you ever fucked before? The ear then attempted to rape her, but he wasn't quite able to. Frustration set in, and he got off of her. He flipped her onto her stomach and then got onto her back and instructed her to play with his penis. He then rolled her onto her back again, lifted up her shirt and her bra. 
He bit her left nipple softly a few times, then clamped down hard, leaving an impression of his teeth behind. Then he raped her this time. He flipped her back over and told her, Don't move or I'll kill you. She then heard him getting dressed, and then placed the knife to her neck and threatened, I'm going to leave. Don't scream for help or I'll cut your throat. Then it fell silent. The description the young girl was able to give was that he was 5'6", white male. This was only a guess. His mask was white, and he had a little body fat that she could tell. There was a report of a 1978 Oldsmobile Cutlass weaving in and out of traffic. Officers pulled the driver over on suspicion of drunk driving. The driver matched the description of the year. He was arrested and charged with drunk driving and rape because the K-9 unit showed up and alerted after smelling the interior of the car and the driver. Later, it was determined that the order of operations wasn't properly followed and the dog gave a false alert. This led to the dropping of the rape charges. There was also a prowler reported before the responding officers had all left the area. The suspect was taken into custody. This suspect was from Sacramento, but living in nearby Pleasant Hill. He was caught with his pants down, literally. He was working for a janitorial company at the time and had gotten off of work at 7 p.m. He was searching for his lost cat, which somehow lasted until 6 a.m. The authorities found several photos of women in his car, which had been taken with a zoom lens. As usual, the phone calls, prowlers, cars, stolen bicycles, etc. were all present after the neighborhood canvas had taken place. There were many women who reported receiving upwards of 10 crank phone calls from, the, from several of the nearby homes. One woman had a nightgown stolen from her bedroom. Another had missing photos of herself. Attack number 49, June 11th, 1979, in the city of Danville on Allegheny Drive. A masked man appeared in the doorway holding his flashlight. The woman in the room awoke to the feeling of something in the room, and when she noticed the man, she nudged her husband awake. Neither of you motherfuckers move or I'll blow your fucking heads off, the man growled. All I want is your money. As was the usual case, he approached the husband's side of the bed and placed his gun to the head of the victim. One move and I'll kill every motherfucker in this house. The man tried to get out of bed but was quickly met with the gun of the ear. Don't move again or I'll blow your fucking head off. Get on your stomach and put your face on the pillow and your hands behind your back. The woman was greeted with some shoelaces to bound her husband with. Tie his hands, she was told. The woman finished binding her husband, and then she was bound. All I want is the money. As soon as we get the money, I can go back to the city, or I can kill every motherfucker here and leave. They told the ear where to find their cash. He started rummaging through the husband's pants, looking for his wallet. When he couldn't find it, he began to grow impatient, saying, It's not here. Your wallet's not here. Don't lie to me. Where's your billfold? The husband told him it was in the den. Don't move or I'll kill you, the ear snarled. Then he headed to the den. He entered the bedroom and immediately began laying into the couple. You moved, didn't you? You tried to untie him, didn't you? Then he checked the bindings again. He removed the wife from her bed and untied her ankles. He also gagged the husband using a yellow hand towel. He gagged and blindfolded the female victim too and escorted her out of the room. Where is your purse? He questioned the female. She could not respond with a gag in her mouth and he told her to shut up as she attempted a proper response. He brought her into the den and forced her to the floor, tying her ankles again. He went back to the husband and checked his bindings again, then pulled sheets up over his head. Next, he stacked perfume bottles on his back and leaned over to him, warning him if he heard them rattle, he'll blow his fucking head off. He pushed his gun up against the husband's head and cocked it. Then he told him, you don't like it, do you? There's nothing you can do about it. The assailant then took off through the house and began ransacking. During the ransacking, he stopped, went over to the victim, and stood over her. He said to her, I'm hungry. I need something to eat. He then went to the refrigerator, where she could hear him opening a can of beer. He came back and stood over her again. I want to fuck you. His penis was then placed in her hands. Play with it. Stroke it. He stopped for a moment. Then he continued on. I want you to suck me. 
He forced her to perform sex acts on him, then rolled her over and raped her. After he was done with her, he ransacked through the home again. He approached her and touched her shoulder with something. I have to take these out to my van. Don't move or I'll blow your head off. I'll be back. Then he was gone. She had no idea what he had poked her with. At one point during the attack, the couple heard a small vehicle, which sounded like a truck, race up the street and stop in front of their house. It sat for a few seconds, then they heard it race off. Then after driving a short distance, they heard it stop and the door slam. They assumed he was gone now. The husband attempted to get loose, but the ear was still in his room just watching him. They think this was around 4.30 a.m. He waited a bit longer and then finally slipped his blindfold. It was now 4.45 a.m. The scent dog came in and traced the path from the home through several backyards, finally ending about 20 yards south of the intersection of Delta and El Capitan. They found footprints that matched his shoe type all along the trail. The investigation revealed he entered the home through the couple's three-year-old child's bedroom window. The suspect description was the usual, except they did say he seemed to be stocky, maybe due to his sweater, or due to the fact that he was truly stocky. Several reports of prowling, a stolen bicycle, and crank calls. An interesting tip was had around 11.45 p.m. The person of interest was standing around five feet away looking at his neighbor's house. Then the man hopped a fence in the side yard. The witness watched for several minutes until he finally went outside to see what the man was doing. The witness continued east on El Capitan Street. As he came close to Allegheny Drive, the person of interest hopped on a 10-speed bike and sped off. Police responded to the call at 12.15, but they didn't find anyone. Attack number 50, June 25th. 1979, Walnut Creek, San Pedro Court. A family consisting of a 13-year-old girl, her 16-year-old sister, and their father lived together on San San Pedro Court. The father used to wake up around 4.45 a.m., woke just before his alarm went off. He heard his youngest daughter running into his room screaming, I've been raped. The 13-year-old had been fast asleep when an intruder was on top of her back, placing his hand over her mouth. He warned her, don't say a word. I'm not going to kill you. All I'm looking for is money. All I want is money. He put his knife against her neck and ordered her to place her hands behind her back. He warned the young girl that he would stab her if she didn't comply. He bound her up like all the others, then told her, through his clenched teeth, I'm not going to kill you. All I'm looking for is money. All I want is money. He then began lubricating himself, straddled her, and told her, You rub my cock and you better make it good or I'll kill you, as he placed his penis into her bound hands. Then he climaxed on her and ordered her onto her back. He untied her feet and pulled off her underwear. Then he asked, Have you ever been fucked before? She didn't reply. I want you to spread your legs far apart. Just do what I want and I won't hurt you. Give me a good drop or I'll kill you. He told her as he spread her legs apart. He then raped her. After he was done, he tied her feet. If I hear one word out of you, I'll kill you while I'm looking. Looking, looky, for money, money, money. The victim got loose shortly after this and alerted her father of the rape. Scent dogs are brought to the scene. It was the same three dogs that had been at the second from last attack. They remembered the victim's scent and began following it across the yard down the street to where a pool was being built. This is where the scent stopped, the same spot where they had stopped tracking him on June 2nd. He never entered any of the rooms in the home besides the one that he was in during the assault. The sisters at the house did receive a silent phone call while they were on their summer break from school. The victim did shop at Alpha Beta Market, which marks the third straight victim to shop there. Nothing suspicious happened while she was there that she recalled. The suspect was described similarly as the others, except that he had been described as being chunky. She also reported, as many others, that he possibly had a Mexican accent. Attack number 51, July 5th, 1979, Danville, Sycamore Hill Court. 
A man was fast asleep around 6 a.m. when he was awakened by something in the room. His wife was fast asleep next to him. He sprang out of bed to see a man in the doorway pulling a mask down over his face, wearing a blue jacket, buttoned all the way up to his neck, gloves on, and shoelaces dangling from his hands. The man, 6 feet 2, 220 pounds, sprang into action. The couple had a plan if the ear were to attack them. He would confront the man while his wife would escape for help. The large man confronted the ear, yelling at him, Who the fuck do you think you are? What the fuck are you doing in here? The husband blocked the man, and the wife slipped out beside them and ran down the stairs and outside, immediately screaming for help. Neighbors heard the commotion and called the police right away, which is something no other neighbors had done before. The husband then escaped downstairs as his wife did. The husband got a great look at the man and even underwent hypnosis to describe him. He was 5'10 to 6 feet tall, 160 pounds, with a wiry build, square shoulders like a football player. He could see enough of his face to say it was a boyish face, with lean but not bony features. He had a particularly large nose. His eyes were round, deep-set, and light-colored, likely hazel. His eyelashes were full, but not feminine. His eyes were also described as wide-open, yet sleepy-looking. There was a composite that was created from this incident, which is the cover of Larry Compton's book, Sudden Terror. The photo that they came up with, the composite sketch, is, like we said, it's the... It's the picture that's on Larry Crompton's book, Sudden Terror, and it's a picture of a man, and he's wearing what looks like, you know, a, a dark ski mask with only eyes cut out of it, and they're rather big eye holes, and you can see there are two relatively big eyes behind this mask. The mask is, like, they try to make it look kind of um, see-through, and you can see, like, these very thin lips underneath. You don't really see much of his nose in this picture, but you can see he's got the mask kind of, I mean, it looks like he has a really broad jaw from what you can see, like, at the base. So he has his chin, and then it, like, kind of fades out to, like, a wide-set jaw, and um, and he's got a button-up shirt all the way buttoned up to his neck. And, you know, this, this picture is a pretty famous uh, photo from the series, and, uh, you know, it's it's one of those uh, composites that you see frequently when you research this case. And that all stems from this last attack. And the interesting thing from this attack is, you know, this couple had a plan. They surprised him. He was described as when when the male approaches him, you know, and instantly comes up on him, he takes a couple involuntary steps backwards, they say. And then he just kind of like blinks at the guy. Doesn't really hesitate. Doesn't do much. And the one thing that I was wondering during this attack is why didn't he attack the man at this point? Like he didn't stab him. He didn't shoot him. He didn't do anything. He just kind of like let him escape the way that it was, you know, worded was it was almost like the guy had to run through him to get out of the room and he just kind of lets them go. What'd you make of that? I was wondering as I kind of read through that on the side is when he awoke and saw the guy standing in the doorway, pulling the mask down. They had this elaborate plan, which worked. Thank goodness, you know, his wife escaped down the stairs past him. But this is a big dude, 6'2", 220. The guy's pulling his mask down. He's not in an attack stance with a weapon. I don't know. Even if he's pulling his mask down, he likely didn't have a knife or a gun in his hand, right? And be kind of a weird or awkward. Why didn't the guy just take him to the ground? Yeah, that's kind of the, the one thing that's frustrating. And, you know, he hasn't hesitated to kill people before and for whatever reason he was so surprised during this attack that nobody did anything about it and that's that's the other thing is why didn't the man 
you know, I mean, it's easy to say in retrospect, right? Like, you know, why why didn't you fight the guy who's been raping fifty people and kill a, guy, a few people? Like, why wouldn't you come? You know, have a a knockdown, drag out barroom brawl with him in your bedroom? You know, like, well, that's easy for us to say, but you know, who knows? If you go after this guy, he may maybe he does pull his gun right away because he always ha- seemed to have that like the belt on with all of his weapons in in reach, and so if he does attack him, he might get shot right away. It might be best for his safety that he did take off, but man, it makes you wonder if this guy would have managed to take him down in this at this particular time in the series. This would have saved a lot of grief for people. Yeah, and it would have would have solved one of the, still at this point one of the worst. I have to believe serial rape cases that that I've ever read about or heard about too. But like you, we don't know the situation in the room, you know, how big the room was, how far he had to close on him. There's a lot of variables there, but if you had taken the time to put together such an elaborate defensive plan, if this happened at your house, yeah, I don't know. If it would have been me making that decision in my head, you make that split second decision. If you can close on the guy quick enough before he could pull a weapon. And even if he did pull a weapon, could you get him into a position or a situation where you know, even if he did stab you, you still have the upper hand. You still have an advantage over him if he's on the ground, you know, fighting. I, I guess you don't know your opponent until you're in that situation either, right? Even though the guy is mostly described oh, as 5'8 yeah. to 5'10, and even though you're physically larger than the guy, you know, you, n- you never know what you're up against. So I don't know. It goes both ways. You don't. And, uh, you know, that's the thing about this case. I don't know. If he would have stopped him right here, man. It would have changed everything. Yeah. At this point, it's 1979. And for some of the people that I'm sure that are listening to this case that have followed it, even in the loosely, right, we know that this runs out until 1986. We're talking seven year, seven more years of additional crimes being committed and terror being committed. And look look how many years this investigation drug on for. So, yeah, it could have been a turning point for sure, a huge turning point. This would be the last attack for the ear in Northern California. He had been spotted and possibly thought he was identifiable now. He laid low for a few months and would soon begin striking a new type of fear in a new community. To be continued next week, things escalate as the East Area Rapist morphs into the original Night Stalker. Stay safe. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc